As we begin, I just want to say thank you uh, for your faithful prayers. Uh, a couple weeks ago, while Terry and I were on my study leave, it was certainly a challenging week for both of us, um, but God was faithful. I kind of set up a makeshift office in one of the bedrooms of her mom's house, and she did the hard work. She dove into the deep end of grief as she worked through all of her mom's clothes and closets and jewelry and drawers and I think when it's all said and done, we would both admit that we didn't get everything done that we wanted to do, but at least we were able to do the things that we know needed to get done. And I can tell you that we're both glad to be home and be back with our church family. Even though the last few days have been a little bit challenging for me, I have been battling a cold all week. I'm surprised I have a voice this morning. That's miraculous in and of itself. I was out all day Saturday with a migraine, missed the men's basketball game, one of my great loves in life, and so you know I wasn't doing well. I was trying to take care of my beehives while they were getting prepared for the cold, and I thought, oh, I don't need a suit. I'll just just open it up and feed them and make sure they have what they need. Yeah, I got stung, and then last night I'm walking through the house in the dark and running into a wall and busted my lip, so. But I'm here this morning, so. But as we get started, I do want to share with you uh, what the Lord has put on my heart for us to work through together over this next year. Um, After we finish this five-part series that Brian started last week, um, I'm going to do a new series looking at 1 Timothy, and I've entitled it Church Matters, because I believe it's a, a very important book that... Paul writes to this young Timothy to establish kind of the the foundational principles of a healthy church. And I thought it'd be such a great reminder for us as we begin the year, especially with a number of new families that have joined us, which we are so deeply grateful for. My hope and heart is that what we look at together would unite us in our desire to be the people that God has called us to be. So we'll start with 1 Timothy and then after that, we'll do a short series in the book of Joel. Uh, as you may know, Joel is a, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And uh, Peter says that Joel's prophecy, uh, one of the prophecies he spoke was fulfilled at Pentecost, which I thought would be fitting because I will follow Joel with the final section of the book of Acts. As you may recall, we've done two sections so far. We have the last section remaining, so we'll pick up where we left off last in Acts chapter 18 and work our way through the end of the year looking at that, uh, that book together. So I'm excited about where the Lord's going to lead us this year and walking through that with you. Uh, But I'm also excited about continuing the series that Brian started last week, God With Us, From Garden to City, as we consider God's eternal purpose to dwell among a people he has made his own. And today, we'll talk about the tabernacle and how that fits into the storyline, the sanctuary of God. And in order to make that transition... I want to share with you an excerpt from John Milton's famous Paradise Lost. How many of y'all have ever read Paradise Lost? It's, yeah, that's impressive. I knew we had a scholarly group. Look at that. <laughs> impressive. Well, as, as you may know, it's a poetic account. And in this particular scene, we see Adam and Eve leaving the Garden of Eden. And so I want to ask you just to close your eyes 
And if you could try to imagine this scene, listen to what he says and and try to imagine this scene in your mind. They, looking back, all the eastern side beheld of paradise, so late their happy seat, waved over by that flaming brand, the gate with dreadful faces thronged in fiery arms, Some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them, where to choose, their place of rest and providence, their guide. They, hand in hand, with wandering steps and slow, through Eden, took their solitary way. First of all, I think that's beautiful poetry. And I hope we grew to appreciate some of that as we walk through the Song of Solomon together. What what a scene that creates in our mind, even emotions that it stirs in our heart as Adam and Eve looked back at, at paradise lost, gates guarded by flaming swords of the cherubim. And where would they go? It says they have the whole world in front of them. But where do they start? Milton says, wandering steps and slow, they took their solitary way. It's paradise lost. And it begs the question, where do they go from here? Well, that's actually a question that the biblical narrative will seek to answer for us. But first, it must establish humanity's deep need for God. And in other words, if left to ourselves, if, if Adam and Eve are going to go chart their course on their own, what would happen? We actually see the answer to that question of what would happen if left to ourselves repeated over and over again all throughout human history, including today. Because left to ourselves, we make a really big mess of things. In our lives, in our communities, in our world. And so in his divine mercy, God intervenes. Early in the biblical account, we see how this heavenly presence draws near to a sinful people. He does so in the tabernacle, a a holy sanctuary. God intervenes, but not without restrictions, because the sinful consequences of the garden continue And so in those detailed instructions of the tabernacle, we see God dwelling among his people, but with restrictions of how that will take place. But in those instructions, we actually see a promise, a pathway to fulfill his eternal purpose, to draw near to a people he has made his own. And we'll get a glimpse of that this morning. So before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come to you this morning. We we sing the phrase, we hear the words, God with us. We're told that you have drawn near to us. If we're honest, sometimes it doesn't feel like that. It can feel very distant and far away. But I would just ask, Lord, that as we look at your word this morning, that, that we would appreciate with new heart and new eyes 
the ways that you are eternally near to us, that you have drawn in close, and that sometimes the emotions that we feel of your distance are actually a deception of our enemy who wants us to convince us of things that are not true. So this morning, Lord, would you open our eyes to what is true? Would you renew our hope of your nearness and allow us to draw near to you with humble hearts? We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, I want to begin in Genesis, actually a passage that Brian looked at last week. I'm going to revisit. So if you would turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, I'd love for you to read along with me, if you will. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says in verse 8, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing in the sight, in, in the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I like what Brian said last week when he said that God got his hands dirty in the garden. Instead of speaking things to existence, he actually worked the garden to plant a flourishing place for humanity to live. He took the man formed out of the earth. He placed them, placed him in this garden. And at the center of the garden, as we see in this passage, there are two trees. One tree that brings life and one tree that brings death. So if we were to kind of step back and get, if you will, a 30,000-foot view of what we see described in the Garden of Eden, what we'll see is that, that God created this garden within a larger region known as Eden. And in the center of that garden is the tree of life. In my mind, in my imagination, I kind of picture three concentric circles. In the center is the most sacred place where that life of tree of life exists. That tree sits within a larger space of a garden. And that garden sits within a larger region known as Eden. And this is the place where Adam and Eve have unhindered fellowship with God. There are no limitations. It could happen anywhere at any time. And in that place, God gives them a commission. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It's like a divine expansion project. They were to extend the boundaries of the garden to the uttermost parts of the world. But as we learned last week, that project came to a screeching halt when Adam and Eve willfully chose, instead of following God's commission, to go their own way. Instead of trusting in God's faithful provision, they literally and figuratively took matters into their own hands. And as a result, they were banished from that garden paradise, paradise lost. And then... As the population of the earth grew, so did man's sinful rebellion. To the point that God assesses things in Genesis 6-5, and this is what he says. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness was, of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart 
were on evil continually. Wow. That didn't take very long, did it? But we're beginning to see the answer to that question of what happens if mankind is left to themselves. We learn that that God sends a flood and destroys those who are unrepentant before him. He has invited all of them to, to come and trust in him. But only Noah and his family would be saved. They were the only ones who were righteous and willing to put their trust in the Lord. So now we get to try again, right? The slate is wiped clean. What will happen if man is left to themselves? Scene two, the Tower of Babel which once again is an undeniable rebellion against God's divine commission. Because you remember what he told Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But listen to what they say as they gather around the tower. Come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach into the heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, We will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So I hope you can see the answer. That left to ourselves, we make a really big mess of things. It never ends well. Never. And I think Jeremiah tells us explicitly why that's the case. When he says, the heart, speaking the heart of humanity, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Bible clearly establishes our need for God, but unless God moves towards us, we have no hope of any relationship with him. So in the very next chapter, after the Tower of Babel, God moves towards sinful man. He actually invites an idol-worshiping man named Abraham. He was a worshiper of idols, and God called him out of that lifestyle and said, follow me, and I will lead you to a land of promise. And Abraham did. He believed. He turned and put his trust in the Lord, and God made him a promise. We see that promise in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So from this one man, through God's initiative, he forms a great nation. The nation we know today is the nation of Israel, a people set apart as God's own possession. He identifies them in the Bible as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Just like Adam and Eve, they were called to be a blessing to the world, to go beyond their boundaries. And in order for that to happen, God gave them some very detailed instructions. We know them as the Torah or the law. And they were instructions on how to relate to one another, how to relate to the foreigner, And most importantly, how to relate to God. And this is where the tabernacle comes into play. We see God explain that in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. And it says this. God speaking, it says, and let them make me a sanctuary. And here's why. 
that I might dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Knowing that man, left to themselves, always leads to ruin, God takes the initiative to show them a different way. He selects a chosen people to be a light to the nations, made possible because the light of his presence among them, he would dwell with them. And so in the following chapters of Exodus, we see the detailed blueprint instructions of what that tabernacle, that sanctuary of God would need to look like. And this, my friends, is where it gets very fascinating. Because as you're reading about this tabernacle and all the details of the instruction, there's something in the back of your mind thinking, I know I've seen this somewhere before. It sounds really familiar, and it should. First of all, if you go back to that idea of those concentric circles in the Garden of Eden, you actually see that replicated within the tabernacle. Remember in the garden, you had that central place where it was most sacred, where you would find the the tree of life surrounded by this lush garden that was surrounded by this region known as Eden. You see a similar pattern with the temple because in the center you have what was known as the Holy of Holies, that most sacred place where God's presence dwelled. Then outside of that, you had the holy place. This is where all the provisions were provided for the the table of bread and the altar of incense and the golden lampstand. And outside of that was the outer court where you would have the sacrifices that were made. In, In many ways, it's a miniature version of the garden sanctuary. In fact, there's garden imagery literally woven throughout the tabernacle. There are images of plants and flowers, of pomegranates and almond blossoms. That golden lampstand stood almost like the the tree of life within that place. Cherubim were embroidered into these massive curtains protecting that sacred place, the Holy of Holies, much like the angels that guarded the eastern gate of Eden. And the list goes on and on and on. Suffice it to say, when you walked into the tabernacle, you were stepping back in time. See, God's purposeful design of the tabernacle was meant to recapture his ideal for creation. Because remember, it was just a replica This is an earthly representation of a heavenly reality. The tabernacle would would be the scene where a story would take place that would point to a, a promise that would one day be fulfilled. We see that promise in what was known as Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. Listen to how God explains this most holy day in Leviticus chapter 23 verse 26 when he says, The tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny or humble yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day because it's the day of atonement when atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. 
See, this is the culminating event of the year. This is what everything pointed to month after month. It was done in order to purify all the sinful corruption that took place within the sacrificial system. It was almost like a a computer rebooting to kind of start fresh again. It was the only time that the priest was ever allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, that most sacred place where God's presence dwelled among his people. And he did so in order to sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice onto the Ark of the Covenant, what was aptly known as the mercy seat. And I know to our modern ears, this religious ritual sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? You have animal sacrifice, the the sprinkling of blood. I mean, what is going on here? Well, maybe it'll help if you think of this religious ritual like a play or a drama, a performance that is filled with symbolic imagery. I remember when I was in seminary and I was in my Trinitarian class and um, at the end, the professor gave us the option to use whatever kind of our creative skills might be to take something that we learned within the class and present it in that creative form. I was a woodworker, so I did something out of woodworking. And uh, there were, beforehand, though, he says, let me give you some examples of what students have done in the past. He said, I want to show you a, a ballet that somebody choreographed. And to be honest with you, my first thought was, oh, great, a ballet. Really? That's what they're going <laughs> to I'm telling you, it brought me to tears. It was one of the most beautiful, moving things I've ever seen in my life. Now, I've never been to Christ in the Arts. I would love to go. I think that was this weekend, wasn't it? I hear the same thing about people who go and observe that performance. But the reality is, as beautiful as the performance is, it's not the performance itself that's so mesmerizing. It's what the performance points us to that is so breathtaking. And that's the point of the tabernacle. The writer of Hebrews says as much in Hebrews chapter 10, verse one, for the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers having been once cleansed We no longer have had a consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Did you hear that? The the Day of Atonement is a shadow. It's a symbolic drama of things to come. It's a reminder of sin. But it's also a reminder of the consequence of sin. Because even though God has taken the initiative to draw near to his people, there is still literally a barrier in place that inhibits that life-giving fellowship with God like we see in the garden. But what we see in the tabernacle is a pathway for God to fulfill that promise, for people to draw near to his presence unencumbered. Next week, Jeff will kind of unpack what the next step of that pathway looks like, and it's going to be good, so you don't want to miss it. But there's plenty of things for us to take away from what we've looked at together this morning. 
If I could simplify it, because that's what I have is a simple mind, and if I could simplify it down to two things, I would say it this way. We push, God pursues. Over and over again, we push, God pursues. When left to ourselves, remember that was the question we asked in the beginning. What would happen if left to ourselves? Well, if left to ourselves, we push God away. We want to navigate life apart from him, determining what is right and wrong in our own eyes. We want to build a kingdom centered around our own thoughts and desires and intentions. That's what we see increasingly happening in our world today, right? Where people are allowed to choose their gender, determine their own morality. We see it even within the church when we choose to determine the cost of discipleship. How far are we willing to go and yet still remain comfortable in the lifestyles that we want to keep? But the more we live apart from God, the deeper we fall into ruin. Because even though we might achieve everything we think we wanted, it's never enough. It's never enough money. It's never enough success. It's never enough love or acceptance from another person. We push and push and push. And yet God tirelessly pursues The tabernacle teaches us about God's eternal purpose. He takes the initiative to draw near to us, but the tabernacle also exposes the problem of sin. It reveals the need for a sacrifice. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And and not, as we've learned, not the blood of, of bulls and goats. Hidden within the provision of the tabernacle is a promise. The tabernacle ultimately points us to Jesus. We see that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. It says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So we need to know, despite what our emotions may tell us at times, God, even now, in this moment, has drawn near to us. And he's made a way for us to flourish in life-giving fellowship with him. And you know what? There's only one thing that God requires. In fact, there's only ever been one thing that God requires to experience the fullness of everything that he wants to give us to flourish in our relationship with him. You know what the one thing is? I read about it earlier in a passage when I said that the seventh day of the, or the seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and humble yourselves. It's the only requirement. Humility. Psalm 51 tells us as much when it says in verse 17, the sacrifices that God desires... What's most meaningful to him is a humble spirit. Oh God, a humble and repentant heart you will not reject. Throughout all of human history, God has always embraced a humble and repentant heart. He always has, 
and he always will. That humble heart is what says, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. That humble heart is what admits, apart from you, I can do nothing. A humble heart is what prays, Lord, not, not your will, or not my will, but your will be done. When we have a humble heart before a holy God, he will rescue, he will redeem, he will restore, and he does it over and over again. That's how he will fulfill his eternal purpose to draw near to a people that he has made his own. So with that heart in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do want to come before you humbly and confess how pridefully we can pursue life of comfort, of leisure, maybe power or success, how easily we fall into the trap of doing what's right in the eyes of the world without considering what is right in the eyes of you, our God. And so, Father, we want to come to you this morning with that humble heart, recognizing that you have moved mercifully towards us. You have drawn near to a sinful people. And you have invited us into life-giving fellowship with him. And you only require one thing, and that is to be humble before you. To recognize our deep, desperate need for your grace and mercy and forgiveness. And to find fellowship in that forgiveness and love that knows no end. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. I really appreciate the intention that Chris and his team uh, have taken to choose songs because really they've given us in song uh, the heart of the message because these are just humble prayers before a holy God. And this is what everything in our passage led us to understand this morning, that left to ourselves, it leads to ruin, that it does not go well when we go outside of God's design. But when we stay within the boundaries of all that he has created and intended, we flourish beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. And so let me just encourage you, listen, if you are in a place, you know, uh, Tanner mentioned authentic community. And one of the things that happens in authentic community is you have a safe place with people in this church family to walk up and say, I'm not in a good place. I'm not where I need to be and I'm not flourishing in that relationship. Maybe you have stepped out the boundaries of God's design. But listen, you are being invited in. And so have a conversation where you talk about what God is impressing upon your heart. And let's just see how God draws near to you in those moments through those conversations. Because I assure you, he will. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this church family that is so gracious and kind, so loving and sincere, and yet so imperfect in so many ways. And yet we belong to you and we we turn to you with humble hearts, knowing that you embrace our repentance with utmost forgiveness and allow us to live that out in a community as a church family together as we seek to know you and follow you more faithfully. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.